This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to the Asia Briefing. I'm Tom Starrick, and once again, I'm joined by Megan Tobin, my co-host. Welcome, Meg. Hi, Tom. It's election season in Asia, and today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at the Indonesian vote, which is scheduled for April 17. President Joko Widodo is poised to earn a second five-year term, and even though the campaign hasn't been quite as dramatic as what goes on in other parts of Asia, there's still competing visions on display between Widodo and his challenger, Prabowo Subianto. That's right, Tom. This will be the fourth national presidential election for Indonesia, which is the world's largest Muslim-majority democracy. Before 2004, the country's president was chosen by parliament, and there were two dictatorships in the 20th century. Um, So this is a big uh, chance for Indonesians to exercise their democratic rights as citizens of the not only the world's largest Muslim-majority country, but the fourth largest country in the world. And there are competing visions of Indonesia on display here. So uh, Joko Widodo, or known as Jokowi sometimes, he uh, was looked at kind of as Indonesia's Obama, if you will, and promised a lot. It kind of came from outside of the political establishment and promised a lot of reforms and Many say that he hasn't quite delivered on many of his promises. And he has, in order to uh, gain some of the vote in Indonesia, he has paired with his vice presidential candidate, uh, Maruf Amin, who is a little bit more conservative uh, Muslim cleric. He's in his 70s. Some observers are concerned with if Jokowi were to win a second term with Maruf as his vice president, that they would enact some more conservative social policies and possibly crack down on rights for members of the LGBT community, whereas Prabowo is well known to be connected to Indonesia's longstanding military political establishment. He uh, is a former general, and he was close to the family of the last dictator of Indonesia. So we're previewing that Indonesian election with Lin Lee, the editor of our Asia Desk. And then we're going to take a look at a major public health story from a couple of different angles. More than 50 years since the measles vaccine was first developed, but the measles virus is resurgent in several parts of the world. And Meg, you've been writing about this soaring number of diagnoses in different parts of Southeast Asia and the anti-vaccination movement that's been taking root there. That's right, Tom. And we'll also be joined by Liz Chung, who is a reporter on the Hong Kong City Desk, and she's been covering the measles outbreak in Hong Kong in the past month. Um, This is really a disease that the world thought it had largely eradicated at least brought under control. And as we'll hear, you know, governments across the region are really being forced to confront it all over again. But before we get into Indonesia and the resurgence of the measles virus, let's start just by briefly recapping events in Thailand, which we focused on in a previous podcast. Of course, there was an election there at the end of March. Our reporters were on the ground. And even a few weeks after the vote, it remains a highly fluid, largely unpredictable situation, which is very much in keeping with the slightly chaotic nature of Thai politics over the past 20 years. We should note, though, that the former Prime Minister, Thaksin Shinawatra, his daughter actually got married in Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago. And Meg, I understand you managed to talk your way into the wedding. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, not quite into the wedding, Tom, but Bavin and I were on the ground at the Rosewood Hotel, which is a beautiful property that had just opened a week before the wedding in Hong Kong. And we went 
you know, not to be creepy tabloid journalists or anything. We were just hoping to catch a little color, see what the venue looked like and see which guests had arrived. And uh, kind of before I knew it, I was not only in the ballroom where the wedding was going to take place, but uh, walking through the photo shoot of the ladies in waiting, which was pretty glamorous. We also saw Toxin arrive and greet his daughter and her husband, and the whole Shinawatra clan was there in force, as well as uh, Princess Ubalratna, and it was really a kind of defiant show of celebration and influence um, for this party that's still really exerting a lot of power over Thai politics just a few days before the election. And so, of course, it's worth noting that Toxin Shinawatra, former prime minister of Thailand, forced from power in a coup, also his sister, Yingluck Shinawatra, more recently forced from power in a separate coup in 2014. So that's why they're in Hong Kong and not in Thailand. Right, Tom. They basically can't set foot in Thailand. That's why they had this big celebration in Hong Kong, also to show, you know, they're still exerting a big influence in Thai politics. Um, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about how that's shaking out? As I said, it's still a a little bit of an unknown about where we're going to end up. Uh, Part of that is because of the protocol around the king's coronation, which is scheduled for May. Our reporters will be back in Bangkok back in Thailand to cover that event. But we do have to almost wait until then to get a final uh, a final analysis on the results of the election. But what we do know is that the Thai junta, their proxy, which is the Palong Pracharat party, they emerged with less than a quarter of the votes, about 35 million votes cast overall. That junta's proxy, uh, they emerged with about 8 million, a bit more than that. After that vote count was made public, a democratic front of seven other parties emerged to try and form government. And that included the Putai Party, which is the main proxy of the Shinawatra clan. And they joined forces with six other parties, including the Future Forward Party, which is one of the big stories of this election. It's essentially an upstart party that was only formed last year. And they did really well. And I can't help thinking that's going to be one of the big takeaways from this election. Essentially, a younger, a younger kind of voter, a younger generation who's sick of this long-running kind of tug of war between the military establishment and the Shinawatras and Future Forward have sort of emerged as a, I guess, an alternative to that tug of war, to that power struggle. So we had that democratic front emerge, but already the pushback against that has been quite intense. There's been sedition charges leveled against the Future Forward leadership, and there's now even talk of recounts in some parts of the country. So what's clear is that these intervening months between the vote and then the king's coronation in May are being used by the military and their proxies, the various parties who they're aligned with. They're really taking the opportunity to push back against some of their political rivals and strengthening the hand of the military, Prime Minister Prayut Chanocha and making sure that they remain at the heart of Thai politics. It's amazing that it takes so long to get the votes counted when in Indonesia they deliver a result uh, within 24 hours for over 200 million voters. And that's a perfect segue into our discussion of the Indonesian election. So we're joined now by Lin Lee, our Asian news editor. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom and Meg. And so you've been following the Indonesian elections very closely. They're now just weeks away. And I think the incumbent Joko Widodo seems poised to earn a second five-year term. His approval ratings are 60%, 70%. Is it a fair assumption for us to to project that he is going to win re-election, do you think? 
So Tom, I think that's the question on everyone's minds. But before I answer that, I think what I can do is to kind of give you a sense of the scale of this election. So this is Indonesia's fourth direct presidential election. Um, and this year, for the first time, we are having uh, presidential and legislative elections at the same time. There are going to be 193 million voters, over 240,000 candidates from 16 political parties, they are vying for over 500 national parliament seats, but thousands more seats in regional parliaments spread across the 34 provinces. So for the presidential election, we're actually seeing a two-horse race between Joko Widodo, his running mate, who is an elderly cleric, Maruf Amin, versus uh, former three-star general Prabowo Subianto and his running mate, entrepreneur Sandiaga Uno. Now, the law in Indonesia requires um, presidential candidates to have the support of at least 20% um, of parliamentarians in the national parliament or the support of parties that together won 25% of the national vote in the previous legislative election. So based on this, we already see Widodo having enough support from political parties to kind of propel him um, into power once again. The latest pollsters show us, um, this is based on four nationwide surveys conducted in the second half of March. So they show that he's between 13 and 20 percentage points ahead of Prabowo and Sandiaga. So yes, I think it's fair to say that he could be expected to win. But having said that, we also are seeing undecided voters as high as 20% in these surveys. And so can we just maybe drill down a little bit on uh, Widodo's background? Uh, he was the governor of Jakarta before running for president in 2014, which he won that election, of course. And he, he was not a member of the political elite or from the military establishment when he, when he ran. So how might we characterize his presidency? What, what do you think is, is the explanation for his, his popularity? Has he got any particular uh, signature achievements that he's, he's running on second time around? So, Tom, you're right to say that, you know, yes, he's not part of the political elite. In fact, he was a businessman in Solo, um, you know, who became the mayor of Solo before he decided to run for the highest office in the land. Um, so he's run on this common man platform, promising reforms, promising to have clean government. And I would say on most counts, he's probably delivered it. Um, if we look back at his five-year term, we've seen, you know, infrastructure reforms, uh, more investments, there's now greater tax compliance. He's sought to reform land laws, for instance, you know, um, he's handed out uh, ownership titles for, I think, about 4.5 million hectares of land, uh, according to a recent Bloomberg report. So he's made all these um, you know, improvements to the lives of Indonesians, but he's also focused very much on social welfare. So among these policies would be free universal health care, um, giving out cash handouts. Um, you know, he's also retained domestic oil subsidies, which has earned him some criticism because th this costs Indonesia a lot of money. But obviously, um, making sure that the cost of living is affordable is topmost on his mind. And he's also realized that this is a sure way to continue getting support. 
that brings us to the man he's running against, Prabowo Subianto, and his running mate, Santiago Uno. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure. So in a way, this is a rematch of 2014. Um, Prabowo also ran in the 2014 election um, with, with his running mate then, Hatta Rajasa. Um, Prabowo, you know, he's, he's always portrayed himself as the ultimate nationalist. Um, you know, he, he was um, a member of the special forces, if I'm not mistaken, uh, during the time of Suharto. So he's always intimated that he will govern Indonesia like a strong man. Um, he's made his platform all about the economy. You know, he's, he's promised, uh, you know, more better economic growth, um, a stronger Indonesia, helping farmers who are grappling with falling agriculture prices, um, you know, and saying that he's going to stamp out graft. Um, you know, one of the quotes I think that, that we've heard, you know, in, in the media is, you know, him saying, if we are weak, we are going to be stomped upon by other nations. So that's, that's really a platform that, that he's been um, running on. In comparison, his running mate, Sandiaga, has come across as this very uh, savvy, you know, modern Muslim. Um, he's also campaigned on the platform of keeping costs low for Indonesians, but he's also focused on getting the private sector more involved in Indonesia's development. So that means not just relying on foreign investment, but also seeing how to grow um, the private sector and the domestic economy. Is it true that he spent $100 million of his own fortune on his candidacy so far? Well, that's what media reports say. So I guess we can say yes if they are to be true, if they are to be believed. Um, what I think is interesting about Sandiaga, though, is that analysts have said, you know, he's in it for the long game. Uh, he knows that it's not going to be easy to win this election, but he's looking ahead. He's only 49 years old. He's turning 50 this year, so he's got a long runway ahead of him. It seems also like identity politics are really figuring in in a big way this time for voters. Can you tell us a little bit about how religion has been deployed by the different candidates? So that's a good question. Um, Indonesia, as you know, has over 260 million people. It's multicultural and multi-religious. But like many countries around the world, it's grappled with a rising religiosity and to some level, um, you know, a growing level of fundamentalism as well. Uh, Indonesia is a Muslim-majority country. And so obviously, Muslim votes are very important to anyone who wants to be its leader. Um, we've seen, you know, the growth of hardline groups and obviously Prabowo has not shied away from an association with them. Uh, in fact, they form uh, the core of some of his supporters in some areas in Indonesia. And so with that appeal to certain religious groups, is that something that we're seeing in uh, Jokowi's candidacy? He's basically been a, a fairly secular centrist for a lot of his uh, time in power. Is he having to sort of compromise and and pander a little bit during the campaign? Um, you're right, Tom, to say that. I mean, um, you know, Jokowi has has always portrayed himself as a secular, moderate uh, kind of person. So in so I think there was some surprise when he chose a conservative cleric, Maruf Amin, as his running mate. Now, this really came about because a former associate of his, uh, Basuki Jaja Pranama, who was the former vice governor of Jakarta, was implicated, uh, you know, in this case where he was said to have, uh, you know, insulted the Quran. 
And, you know, while Jokowi in the end uh, managed to distance himself from it, I mean, uh, this uh, Pranama went to jail, Jokowi managed to distance himself from it. I think he's. it's become very clear to him how um, it would be so easy for, for voters to think that, you know, he's not as Muslim as he should be. So pairing himself with this cleric um, is really supposed to give a boost to his religious credentials. And so that's Jokowi's appeal to these religious groups. But what about the other side, in particular, San Diego? So San Diego's interesting because I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, he really comes across as this sort of young, successful, modern Muslim. And he's given people this impression that you can be modern, you know, take part in, in a very active life, you know, and still be pious. And we're also seeing, you know, a growing uh, hijra movement in Indonesia where younger Muslims especially, you know, are saying that they are choosing to leave behind what may have been uh, more flawed, sinful, lives for purer, more Islamic ones. Um, That really means that, for instance, they would maybe observe certain Islamic practices more closely. Um, And a lot of this, I think, is really driven by social media. We've we've seen um, lots of, you know, sort of hip and cool Islamic preachers um, you know, spreading the spreading their gospel online, and I think this has also fueled a lot of interest uh, among younger Indonesians. And when China has featured really prominently as an issue in other elections in the neighborhood, um, how has China featured in this election in Indonesia? So I think anti-China rhetoric um, hasn't starred as much in the public campaign as some analysts would expect. But we've really seen a lot of this, uh, these worries about Chinese investment and Chinese workers playing out on social media. A lot of them are hoaxes and, and fake news. Um, you know, I'll give you some examples. We've seen recent Facebook posts that say Chinese workers are equipped with electronic citizen ID cards so that they can vote in the election. Um, one of our Indonesia writers, Resti Woroyunia, recently did a story about rumours on how China would help the Elections Commission fix damaged ballot boxes. Um, These fears of Chinese influence, like I said, are really being fueled by hoaxes. Um, But both sets of candidates have been very careful in what they say about China. Jokowi, for instance, has um, kept relations with Beijing on a very even keel. He's he's accepted investments and loans, but at the same time, uh, his government hasn't shied away from banning or blowing up fishing boats, including Chinese ones that have encroached into Indonesian waters. Prabowo has, you know, said things like, oh, you know, Jokowi has sold out to the Chinese. I'm going to review a Belt and Road project, namely the $6 billion Jakarta-Bandung high-speed rail. But at the same time, he said, no, China can be our friend and, you know, we want to maintain good relationships. And so if, as expected, Wadodo does secure a second five-year term, what do you think that means going forward? You know, if we can project a little bit over the next five years, another five years of Wadodo, what will that mean for Indonesia? and I guess foreign policy in terms of Indonesia's place within the region. So I think we can expect, obviously, some measure of continuity. Uh, Widodo is a tried and th- tested president. Um, you know, he hasn't lived up to all, he hasn't lived up to all his promises. Uh, but we can expect him to continue to expand efforts to improve the lives of Indonesians. Um, I think in terms of foreign policy, we've seen Indonesia take a more active role in this concept of the Indo-Pacific. 
um, you know, trying to rally together countries in the region, you know, to say that, uh, you know, the ASEAN, for instance, should should take a lead in deciding uh, what the relationships in the region are like. Um, and some of this also is to is seen as a counter to right, you know, to the U.S. and China's competition for influence in our region. Um, we've seen Indonesia try to sign more trade agreements. I think during Widodo's term, um, you know, thus uh, giving us a sense that Widodo will be very interested in continuing to reduce Indonesia's trade deficit. So that's that's this element of continuity that I think we can expect um, if he is re-elected. Prabowo is more of a mercurial character, you know. He, I said earlier, he has suggested that he would govern as a strong man, and he's taken some tough positions on on relationships with different countries. He went to Singapore a few months ago, and you know, praised Singapore to the high heavens, and then he's he's you know stated his worries about China, and I think previously also about the U.S. So it really remains to be seen what kind of foreign policy he'll conduct, um, but I think this sense that he would govern as a strongman is really going to be quite at odds with Indonesia's embrace of democracy, I think, since the fall of Suharto in 1998. And with, uh, you know, like we said, 200 million voters across thousands of islands in 24 hours getting a result, this is really going to be, as they call it, a festival of democracy. Yes, that's right. Um, I think the Indonesia election is always very exciting. Um, How it works is that the polling booths open in the morning and then they close by one and then usually by the evening or at night, uh, we'll get some quick count results or the posters will be hard at work to give us a sense of um, how well the different candidates are doing. Um, This year, um, the authorities have pledged that there's not going to be any violence before or after the election. But as always, uh, you know, with elections taking place on such a big scale, I think everyone's still going to be very watchful. Um, And yeah, we hope it goes well. You know, it's a very exciting uh, period, I think, for Indonesia. And we'll, of course, be watching it very closely. Everyone can follow our election coverage, scmp.com. Thanks a lot for being here, Lynn. Thank you. And we're joined now by Elizabeth Chun, who's a health reporter on our Hong Kong City Desk. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. And you're going to help us tackle this story about the the spike in measles diagnoses. It's happening around the world, uh, in Southeast Asia in particular, and now on our doorstep in Hong Kong. But Meg, let's start with your recent piece, which was all about the way measles are, are making this comeback around the world and, and particularly in Southeast Asia. And your coverage looked specifically at this increased diagnoses in Indonesia, but also Malaysia and the Philippines. Can you just start by explaining to us the scale of this outbreak? Sure. Thanks, Tom. So um, this is part of a worldwide 50% increase in measles cases uh, last year, according to the World Health Organization. And um, for the past two years, actually, the Philippines and Indonesia have had the world's second and third highest rates of measles right behind India. Um, And in the first two months of this year, actually, 70 people have already died of measles in the Philippines. So we're really seeing some pretty high numbers. Um, For example, last year in the Philippines, there were more than 20,000 cases, um, which was a tenfold increase from 2017. And in Indonesia, cases doubled from 2015 to a high of 11,000 in 2017. And then last year, back down a little bit to around 5,000. So to give you some perspective, um, in Europe last year, there were about 80,000 cases of measles in all of Europe. So for one nation, for the Philippines to have 20, that's quite a large number. 
And part of the reason that uh, the cases are rising so much is really a lack of trust in the government. Um, people are not trusting that the government is going to give them um, safe or healthy vaccines, um, or they don't trust the information that's being put out about vaccines. Um, and social media is really being used to spread a lot of misinformation um, and anti-vaccine sentiment, as it is in other places in Europe and the U.S. as well. Yeah, I mean, those are some really significant numbers. I, I remember uh, seeing your story when, when, it, when it published and thinking, oh, yeah, measles, thinking it would be sort of a few dozen. But no, we're talking about tens of thousands of people, which I think is going to surprise a lot of people because measles vaccines have been commonplace for, what, like 20, 30, 40 years for, for most kids around the world. So, I mean, you mentioned it. There's a sort of public mistrust of of uh, vaccinations that's uh, a factor elsewhere in the world as well but how does it express itself in Southeast Asia in particular? Sure. So part of the difference is a difference in regulation. So um, in Singapore, for example, kids are required to have the measles vaccine, among many others, before they enter primary school. They're often given it um, during school, actually. And last year, there were just 27 cases of the measles in, the, in Singapore. And in Indonesia as well, kids are required to get the vaccine. They often receive it in primary school and their presence at school on the day of vaccination is interpreted as parental consent to them being vaccinated, although parents can um, say that they, they wish their kid to be omitted from the vaccination campaign. There's kind of spotty enforcement of this, so parents aren't very often notified of when vaccination day is going to happen. But there's actually a growing number of parents in Indonesia who wish their kids not to be vaccinated. And part of this has to do with a growing amount of anti-vaccine sentiment online. Um, some of it is a kind of natural and organic health movement, uh, similar to what we might see in the U.S. or Australia, where people want their kids to be raised uh, with their natural body defenses. Um, but some of them also have more to do with uh, specific objections to the ingredients of vaccines. Um, last year, the uh, Muslim Council of Indonesia actually issued a fatwa against the measles vaccine because it was uh, revealed that the vaccine contained gelatin as a stabilizer and that the gelatin was derived from pigs. And pigs are not halal, so and Indonesia is a majority Muslim country. So a lot of people uh, became really upset to find out that they were being given something that wasn't halal. And the Muslim Council uh, issued the fatwa saying that the vaccine wasn't halal. They issued almost immediately a clarification saying that the vaccine uh, could be taken because there was the absence of a halal alternative and really that the policy was uh, Muslims could ingest anything in minimum quantities if it was for health benefit. So many parents uh, only read you know, the first part of the fatwa or they heard about this being established and there's been a lot of uh, uproar online about Maybe we, we can't trust the government after this vaccine has been uh, distributed so widely. It was also a vaccine that had been imported from India, and most people in Indonesia normally receive domestically produced vaccines. So there's also a little bit of fear there. Um, and we're seeing some a similar phenomenon happening in the Philippines, which, as I said earlier, um, you know, cases of measles really skyrocketed there last year. And this was directly, you know, in the wake of the distribution of a dengue vaccine called Denvaxia, which was uh, made by a French company. And generally, this vaccine uh, was supposed to guard against dengue, which right now there is no vaccine for. And uh, nearly 500,000 people received this vaccine. And then it was found subsequently that 
Um, the vaccine actually could increase your risk of getting dengue if you had received it. So not only would you not be protected against it, but you might actually get a more serious version of the disease. And subsequently, uh, 10 people died. And so that vaccine was recalled. But in the wake of that, understandably, you know, if you were a parent in the Philippines, I think you'd, you'd feel a certain amount of mistrust in the government information about vaccines after that. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And did you speak to any parents or or uh, people working in communities or schools who who expressed these views in particular? I did. I spoke with one woman who runs a blog in Jakarta. She has three children, and she actually started vaccinating them at first on the you know recommended routine immunization schedule, and then she realized that she that there were a lot of um, side effects from vaccinations that were not being reported by the government and or she felt were not being adequately reported, and so she started a website to catalog. Um, cases where children had received vaccines and then suffered adverse effects and um, decided to stop vaccinating her children. And she's really like a a major crusader on Facebook and part of many online forums to share information that she thinks isn't really publicly available. And I mean, we should we should be blunt here. I mean, are these are these uh, are these objections or concerns? Are they credible? I mean, we have a lot of the anti-vaxxer movement around the world where they're uh, they emphasize, I guess, kind of these discredited studies about uh, the connection between vaccines and, and autism. Are the people that you spoke to in that kind of, I guess, murky area of uh, online conspiracy theory, or is this a slightly more uh, empirical way of looking at the, the way vaccines are distributed? I mean, there's certainly plenty of people on the internet that espouse the, um, you know, more conspiracy level theory um, or say, you know, that vaccines are a conspiracy against their community or targeted specifically against them. Um, But I think there's also an element of valid concern in these nations where the government has distributed faulty vaccines. Um, the Indonesian government a couple of years ago accidentally mislabeled some antibiotics as vaccinations and distributed them. So people thought they were getting vaccinated and they weren't. Um, and so I think that there is some some of the, the people I spoke to, um, someone in Malaysia who he said he prefers the term vaccine cautious to anti-vaxxer. So he's not trying to, you know, spread faulty science. He's just trying to say that, and I think this woman I spoke to in Jakarta agrees, you know, that there are, there are some reasons to question what you're being told. At the same time, we should be pretty clear that um, all public health experts recommend uh, 95% at least vaccination rate among a community for it to be protected from infectious disease like measles. And so if there's any you know, break in that, a decline in that, which we've seen in all these nations in Southeast Asia, um, it risks the exposure of the general population to, to highly infectious and sometimes fatal diseases. And I think that's a, this is a great opportunity to bring Elizabeth in. Mm. If you have a problem with uh, contagious disease mm. in one country, it's probably not going to stay contained to that one country. And as we've seen in Hong Kong with your reporting, we've now had an outbreak in the last month of measles in Hong Kong. Can yeah. you just tell us how you came to this story and give us a sense of the the scale of it and and what what do you understand to be the the factors driving it? So about the situation in Hong Kong, so far we are seeing much more cases this year when compared to previous years. So so far, actually, we already have at least forty three cases, and compared with previous years, last year we only had fifteen. And in 2017, there were four. 
in 2016, there were nine. And sorry, so there's 43 cases. That's just in the space of a few weeks, a month, right? Well, actually, most of the cases they reported in March. So we could, say, we could see actually there was like a surge of cases just in one month. I mean, there were some scattering cases reported earlier this year. But yeah, the, the number of cases just spiked in, in March. Yeah. And, and then and apparently the outbreak actually focused in the airport because actually over 20 of those cases, they were actually report, related to airport or airline staff. So Hong Kong Airport, which is obviously one of the busiest in Asia yes. and the world. Yeah, so, correct. And that's that's what is essentially that's uh, the focal point for a lot of these infections. Well, actually, the government now they're putting quite a lot of attention on the airport. And actually, since late March, they have been providing vaccination services to the airport staff in the airport. And also, um, and later on, they also introduced uh, a blood test to the staff to make sure to identify who are actually not immune to measles and then give them vaccines. I mean, why they introduced this blood test was because, I mean, people, they actually started to get panic, I mean, for the for the airport staff. When they saw that actually there, there was a growing number of measles cases in the airport, and they were just starting to get worried that whether they were immune or not, whether they would get uh, infected. So by the time when the government just said that, oh, we're offering this vaccination service, so people had just rushed to get a vaccination uh, service. And actually we saw there were people complaining that they have been uh, lining up for, like trying to line up for three days, but still they failed to get the vaccines in the airport. Or maybe um, like the, the hundreds of quotas, they were just quickly filled up in one morning. So we, we could tell actually people, they were panicking. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's interesting that you, you the, the focus is on the airport, of course. So does that suggest that this is, it's it's a, a situation where people are coming to Hong Kong and bringing the measles virus with them because Hong Hong Kong is a has a reasonable a reasonably efficient uh, vaccination yes setup yeah because actually the WHO announced Hong Kong as a measles three free status in 2016 means that by the time in, when they make the announcement there wasn't any local transmission for in the previous three years. So actually for the current outbreak, the government believe mostly related to imported cases. But I think they're still doing the investigation on the exact causes on what is happening, what why, why, what contributed to the outbreak now. And I mean we we should note Hong Kong is a city where people still die of flu every year. And the outbreak of SARS earlier this century, even though that was I guess 15, 16 years ago now, the the memory of that is still quite vivid in right. this city. Yeah, but then, well, actually, it might not be fair to compare measles with SARS back then because back then when we had SARS, people actually didn't know what that virus was and people actually didn't have any antibodies against this virus. But then for measles, actually, most of the people, they have been immunized to the, against this virus. And also, actually, we know that it is actually a common childhood infection. So actually, there were some medical experts just calling people not to be panicked, uh, even when we have this surge of measles cases in Hong Kong. Do you think the specter of the epidemic like that has actually led to part of the reason why um, vaccination coverage in Hong Kong is so high, even though it's not mandatory. Yeah, yeah it might be. Yeah, but um, I think that um, parents in Hong Kong they really they have this 
they're really aware of um, what they should do for the kids, and um, therefore even without any mandatory requirements, they would still bring the kids for vaccination. I mean, and also in the old in past years, and Hong Kong had a very good. Records in vaccines and medications when compared to maybe other developing countries as well. So, like parents in general, they have this confidence in the healthcare and medical care in Hong Kong. And I think that confidence is exactly what's missing in Indonesia and the Philippines. You've been listening to the Asia Briefing. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and follow our coverage at semp.com. We're filing around the clock and from around Asia. Thanks for listening.